Good morning, everybody. It's, it's good to see you. It's Monday. I trust many of you preached yesterday, and I hope uh, ready to spend the day together. I'm looking forward to the talks, and I'm looking forward to getting to know you. Uh, there is a, uh, there really is a scriptural mandate for churches to know one another and to care for one another and to love one another and to serve one another. And uh, today is just a, a taste of that. So I'm really, though, uh, you know, I passed a few hours away. I, I'm excited to get to know other churches serving the Lord so faithfully in this area. So what a joy to be here. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And as you're turning there, uh, I'll say that uh, my wife Dina and I uh, hadn't been out on a date for quite a while. Uh, our evening together had been a long time coming. Uh, she and I needed a break. We needed time together. We needed to catch up and uh, engage and reconnect with one another. So I don't know where our other three kids were. I just remember we dropped one kid off, our daughter, at a youth event. And we headed out uh, in Kennesaw, which is north of us, looking for a place to eat, when my phone rang. A church member whose mother had recently died wanted some help navigating some family conflict uh, that he was in the midst of in his attempt to prepare for his mother's funeral. Uh, I understood uh, his issue to be time-sensitive, so I answered the phone. I, uh, I know our conversation didn't last really more than 10 minutes, but I have to admit those 10 minutes were precious to my wife and me. I could have let the phone go to voicemail. I didn't have to answer. The world would not have ended. This man's life would not have ended had I not answered the phone. Nonetheless, at that moment, I wanted to help if I could and that conversation uh, came at a cost, admittedly a small cost, but it came as a cost to me and my family. But I wanted to be generous with my time. Now, pastoral ministry can be boiled down to a thousand and one little moments like that. Time is your most precious commodity. And you want to be generous with your time, but every second spent one place is not spent another place. That hour spent in prayer could have been spent catching up on some sleep, right? That hour spent in a counseling meeting could have been devoted to sermon preparation, right? That hour spent given to a pastor's fellowship lunch could have been spent visiting a homebound member. That hour spent on your message could have been spent throwing the ball with your son. That hour spent evangelizing could have been spent catching up with your biological or adoptive brother, right? Now, my goal in this message isn't to say that you should always pick up the phone. No, there are times when you need to turn the phone off, close the laptop, uh, and engage with your family and good friends. My goal in this message is not to tell you how to spend your time. My goal is broader. I want to encourage you to be generous with your time. I want you to see how central generosity is to the Christian life in general and the pastor's life in particular. 
How we spend our time is going to look different from Christian to Christian and from pastor to pastor. That we should be generous with our time should not be open to debate and should be the hallmark of every Christian. Now, I recognize that some of you may be workaholics. I know that's not a biblical word, but if I could use it anyway. I recognize that some of you may, in fact, be workaholics, and you really need to be told on Monday morning to rest, to realize that God is sovereign, to be reminded that it doesn't all depend upon you. Uh, I remember, I think it was at the first Together for the Gospel conference, or one of the really early ones, I remember uh, a sermon given by John MacArthur, and it was something about like how he can put his head on his pillow at night, and it was just recognizing, you know, evangelize all day long, but then go to, go to sleep, recognizing it's God who saves. And I remember being personally encouraged by that, by that message very much. There's a time and a place and a need for messages like that, but this message isn't like that. <laughs> so I'm sorry if that's the one you wanted. Um, my message is a call to take the call to go the extra mile, to open up your home, to pour your life into others when you feel like you don't have any more energy to give. And I guess my, my, my prayer is that you'd be discerning as I talk, because I don't want, in the, in the time that I have with you, I don't want to push some of you who really need to pull back, I don't want to push you over the edge. I am convinced that because our God is a generous God, we should be a remarkably generous people and that pastors need to lead the way. So I would just ask that you listen with discernment and apply this message carefully to your lives so that you don't go in the wrong direction. Our key text is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. So if Romans is the Mount Everest of Paul's letters, this verse is like the flag at the top of the mountain. Verse 32 is a triumphant declaration of the Father's work. He did not spare His own Son. It is also a dramatic promise of God's ongoing work. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things. And to understand what Paul means there by all things, you simply need to look at Romans 8. We don't want to cut one verse out of the Bible, tape it on our bathroom mirror, and convince ourselves that all things means a 500-person church or a child at Harvard or a brand-new car. That would be a mistake. All things must be read in context. In Romans 1-7, through 7, Paul works through our plight, and the promise of Christianity, the plight is the fact that we are all born in sin, unable to serve and please God, left to our own devices, we will all perish without God and without hope. That is the plight of everyone. The promise of Christianity is the good news that through faith in Christ, faith in His life, faith in His death, faith in His resurrection, faith in His return, we can have everlasting life, life that starts the moment you believe. And Paul lays this out in Romans 1 through 7, and then in chapter 8, we have something of an exclamation point to everything Paul has instructed us prior. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So like a prisoner freed from a lifetime sentence, the believer is freed from bondage to sin, from having to prove his own righteousness, and freed from hell itself. Therefore. But what does the life of freedom look like? What does the Father give the prisoner whom he has set free? So many things. The Father gives you the Holy Spirit so that you can walk every day in fullness of life, newness of life, holiness, and joy. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. What a joy to preach to people who have the Holy Spirit. The Father gives you a new family by adopting you and calling you His and giving you the privileges of the firstborn Son. Romans 8, 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Father promises to give you glory, to give you a revelation of His glory, which will include your own glorification, including but not limited to the new heavens and the new earth where and when all of your sin will be a thing of the past. Romans 8, 18, For I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The Father gives you help in prayer for those moments you can't find the words you need. Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Father gives you assurance that every trial you endure will be used by Him for your ultimate good, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And in your darkest moments, when you're nearly convinced that God has abandoned you, or called the wrong person into ministry, the Father gives you the reminder that His love for you is as strong as steel. Romans 8, 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So... Double-click on all things in Romans 8.32, and this is the window that pops up. This is our God. And He is a generous God, and He's more generous than you could ever possibly imagine. And for a few minutes this morning, I simply want us to meditate upon His generosity. Specifically, I want to ask three questions. First, must God be generous? Must God be generous? 
Second, how is God most generous? How is God most generous? And third, what does this mean for the pastor? All right, first, must God be generous? Now, in one sense, the answer is no. No. And this can be hard to hear, but God was under no obligation to save you. No obligation to love you. No obligation to call you, to justify you, to do good to you. Verse 32 asserts by way of asking, will he not graciously give us all things? And that word graciously could be translated freely. God was not required or forced to care for you. He did it freely. He did it simply because he wanted to. Nothing outside of God put pressure on him to be gracious to you. It's time to start thinking about Christmas gifts. Maybe you'll make a list, and that list will include people to whom you want to give something. A parent, a spouse, a child, a friend. But you may just have a few have-tos on your Christmas list, like your cousin from Omaha or your friend from Atlanta who will be passing through town, and you may decide that it is appropriate, maybe even necessary, to get your cousin from Omaha a gift. Don't get him Omaha steaks. Uh, you would not be given, giving freely. You would not be giving without constraint. It is not that way with God the Father. He was under no obligation to send his son, no obligation to send anyone. There was nothing in us that deserved or warranted his attention, much less his affection. Passages like Ephesians 2 make this so clear, describing our state prior to our conversion, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. I don't know which is like the more disturbing image, the one of like you were a corpse or a follower of the prince of the power of the air. I don't know which picture seems more revolting to you, like a stinky corpse or a Satan follower. They're both there in the text the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans chapter 3 is also very instructive. Romans 3, 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all... Both the Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. So not only do passages like this describe our fallen human condition, but they drive home the point that nothing in us would have caused God to think, that person deserves my care. I must lavish my attention and my salvation upon him. So it's, it's, it's helpful to understand that God does not need us. And this can be hard to grasp 
especially since we are so very needy ourselves. We need water to hydrate us. We need food to fuel us. We need love from others to encourage us. We need shelter from the elements to protect us. We need fellowship. We need fellowship to bind us together. We are needy in every possible way, but God is not like us. Acts 17.25, He is not served by human hands as though He needs anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And certainly you know about the idolatry of the ancient world, of the Roman world, of men and women who would wake up in the morning and they would find their altar in their home and they would literally bring food, little bits of food, and lay it down before figurines, whether they were in Rome or in Athens where Paul was when he saw the idolatry of Athens, and they would give things to the idols. That's what they did. They, wo they woke up and they gave things. They gave praise. They gave bits of food. In Job 41.1, God asked the question, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God has never received a gift from us in the sense that it was already his. Isaiah 40.13 who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? God has never gone to anyone for greater clarity. He is not in need of biblical counseling. These verses teach us that God is independent, but not the way someone who lives alone at home is independent. We call it independent living. But God is completely independent entirely independent. He needs nothing outside of himself to thrive or to be. And this is why Moses, when asking what name to call God, God answers to him, I am who I am or I will be who, who I will be. God's very name communicates God is. How different is that from you and me? Right, we have a last name, right? Unless, I mean, I just don't think it's appropriate to be like a, like, Beyonce, Prince, don't do that. I don't think any of you are tempted to do that, but let me tell you why it's problematic, because there's something humbling and appropriate about having more than one name. Right? My name is Aaron Menikoff, and I have a last name, and that last name communicates that I'm part of a family. And that family, uh, my mom gave birth to me, and they, they raised me, right? They, they fed me. Uh, other cultures do an even better job of communicating this. So my my uh, ancestors are from Belarus, but in the, among the Slavic peoples, uh, they made sure that your name was very closely tied to your father's name. So if I, you know, was born in Belarus, my name would be something like Aron Bereyevich Menikov, right? Aaron, son of Barry Menikov. The whole idea is I'm just, I'm not independent. I'm my father's son. I'm dependent upon him. Now, it's communicating a lot of other things, but our very names say something about our dependency. God simply is who He is. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. He doesn't have a last name. When we read in Romans 8.32 that God graciously or freely gives us all things, I want you to let that word graciously really sink in. He didn't have to do it. He wanted to do it. So to the question, must God be generous? The answer is in one sense, no. So in what sense is the answer yes? What I'm about to say may seem a little strange. It may seem a little bit abstract. Bear with me. Here we go. 
God cannot change. He is unchangeable. Go back to his name, I am who I am. His very name communicates his unchanging nature. He is always I am. For him to be more tomorrow than he is today would imply that he was less yesterday. God can't be greater or lesser than himself. God is God. He is unchangeable. Theologians use the word immutable. God doesn't mutate. He doesn't change. And the fact that God does not change is the clear teaching of the Bible. Psalm 102:27. The foundation of the earth will perish, but not God. He is and remains the same. Malachi 3:6 For I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Right? God promised not to destroy Israel completely. How can they be sure that God will keep his promise? He says because I don't change. I love the passage, I think it's Hosea 11.9, where God is promising not to destroy Ephraim, Israel, and he says, because I am God and not man. Like, if I were you, you'd be toast. But me being me, making a promise not to destroy you again, not to send destruction upon you again, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep my word because I'm not you. On Sunday nights, my family often watches The Amazing Race, uh, uh, man, there's a lot of episodes of that series. And in one episode, a few, a few teams, they form a pact, an agreement. They're going to team up with one another, I guess, against the other teams. But as time went on, a couple of these teams started slowing this one team down, a team that was in the pact. And so without apology, without embarrassment, without shame, they just, you know, they just opted out of their agreement, they broke their promise. Why? Because they are not immutable. <laughs> because they are changeable. And therefore, their promises are not trustworthy. God is trustworthy because he's immutable. He does not change. Now, what does this have to do with generosity? God didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'll become generous today. It's been boring for three trillion years I'd like something to do, so I'm going to be generous to the people that I made or the people that I'm going to make, however you want to think about that. No, if God is God, He never changes. He can't become more generous. It must be the case that He has always been generous, that He is always generous, that He will always be generous. It must be the case that generosity is not merely what God did at Calvary. Generosity is who God is. So Stephen Harnock, pastor, many years ago, thought long and hard about the attributes of God, and he asked the question, what is God like? He examined this idea that God is unchangeable, and he concluded all the wonderful attributes of God are simply who God is. He put it this way, God is holy, happy, wise, and good by his essence. By his essence. Simply means that they get to the core of who God is. We could add that God is generous by his essence. Back to our first question, must God be generous? Well, no, if you mean must God be generous to you or to me. But a resounding yes, if you are wanting to know if the characteristic of generosity must be on display in God at all times, yes, it must because generosity is who God is. This is our God. 
Now, I don't need to do a lot with application of this point. Suffice it to say, when Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.15 to be holy as God is holy, he's inviting us to share in the very character of God. I put it very nicely, didn't it? A command. <laughs> Invitation by way of command. Be holy as God is holy. Share in the very character of God. Ensure that God's character is on display in your life. And he's telling us not merely to, to, to run after God's goodness, but his unchangeable goodness. Harnack says we should imitate God in this perfection by striving to be immovable in goodness. God, may your goodness fill me, not merely when I'm, you know, preaching behind the pulpit, but when I'm in the playroom with my kids. I want your goodness to be on display in my life 100% of the time, you know, not, not a portion of the time. I want to be immovable in purity of, of character, in, in goodness. And then I would add immovable in generosity, we trivialize God when we boil down generosity to giving a little more money to the church or spending a little more time with a young Christian. The point is not for you to do a little more because you feel like it's the right thing to do. The point is to see who God is and to marvel at who He is and then seek to be like Him and to be holy like God is holy is to be immovable in generosity. More on that later. All that was the first question. Must God be generous? Yes and no. No and yes. Second, how is God most generous? Well, God is most generous by sending His Son to the cross. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son. The Father gave up His Son, the one He loved, His only begotten Son. And He did this on behalf of sinners like you and like me. He gave Him up for His people. At Calvary, the Father gave up what He prized. He gave up what He loved. He did not spare what He cherished. There can be no doubt, no question that the Father loved the Son, that the Father treasures the Son. Matthew 3, 17, upon Jesus' baptism, the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John 3, 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. No one else deserved the Father's confidence but the Son. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. The love shared between the Father and the Son cannot be separated from the oneness of the Father and the Son. They know each other because God is Trinity, three in one and one in three. John 12, 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you serve Jesus, the Son of God, God the Father will honor you. Right? Some of you will probably meet my son Jonah, who's here today. Uh, if you serve Jonah, my son today, I don't know how exactly you're going to do that, but feel free to find a way. If you serve my son Jonah, you're going to be honoring me. It just works that way. And you, Jesus says, you, you serve me, you're going to be honoring my father. How much more are you going to be honoring the father who sent him? The father so loves the son that he will shower blessings on those who 
honor the son too. Have you ever regifted a present you received? You don't need to admit that in public. Well, Ed is. Ed is not ashamed to let you know that. Um, maybe you didn't want to spend money on your cousin from Omaha. So you went ahead and passed along that puzzle that you received for your birthday. Uh, I dislike puzzles. I really, really do. Um, but my wife loves them, and so I've not passed them along. Uh, it cost you nothing. That present cost you nothing. Maybe you didn't really want it. Nonetheless, you gave it to someone you love. Love. Right? It's not the best picture of generosity. Now, it's a great picture of stewardship, but that's a different sermon. Not a great picture of generosity. What we have in Romans 8.32 is full and pure and robust and complete generosity. God the Father took what he loved more than anything and sent his son off to a painful death. He did not spare him. He did this fully aware that this would lead to the accomplishment of a great plan, the praise of his great name, the making of a great people. However, God did not do it because he had to. He did it because he wanted to. He did not spare his son whom he loved more than anything. We can say that God shows his generosity by giving up not just what he has, but what he loves. And not just what he loves, but what he loves most of all. What he treasured for the sake of his people. Now, we can even say a little bit more. God is generous by giving up himself. I want to be careful here. I need to be clear about what I don't mean when I say God is careful about giving up himself. God the Father did not die on the cross. And hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, some of the church fathers were confused on this issue. They, uh, they implied in their teaching on the Trinity that somehow the Father suffered in a way the Father didn't suffer in the death of Jesus. It's called patripassionism, the suffering of the Father. And I don't want to be, I, I don't, I'm not saying that. When we say that God is three in one and one in three, we mean God is one in essence, three in person. Each person of the Trinity is God. However, as many theologians have rightly put it, the Father is not the Son or Spirit. The Son is not the Father or Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or Son. Yet these are the one same divine being. And thus we say the Son, not the Spirit, and not the Father, died on the cross. With that in mind, don't lose sight of who Jesus is. He is truly man and truly God. He is, Hebrews 13:8, the same yesterday, today, and forever. John writes about Jesus in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the one by whom through whom all things were made that were made, Colossians 1. And in Acts 20, 28, when Paul is giving his parting words to the elders in Ephesus, he issues this charge, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Whose blood was shed on that cross? The blood of God the blood of our Lord. Now, all this, I have to confess, leaves me with probably more questions than answers, but this much I know. On that cross, God gave up himself. 
the past few years, I have heard about some pretty remarkable acts of generosity. A couple of years ago, there was a, a college in Atlanta where a commencement speaker came and told the graduating class he would cover all of their college debts. That is a great gift. That is a great example of generosity. Some of you parents are like, I need that gift. Google tells me that Bill Gates makes about $4 billion a year. That's about $11 million a day. That's about $450,000 an hour. That's about $127 a second. To date, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has given away about $45 billion. Have you heard of Warren Buffett's giving pledge? Here it is in his words, more than 99% of my wealth will go to philanthropy during my lifetime or at death. Buffett goes on to say, my family and I will give up nothing we need or want by fulfilling this 99% pledge. And that's because if he gives away 99% of what he has, he, uh, he still has nearly a billion dollars. I don't like know the difference like in your lifestyle if you've got a billion dollars versus four billion, you know? I just think it would be an interesting thought experiment, but probably I could spend my time in more edifying exercises. All of these gifts are very, all of these givers are very, very wealthy givers, but let's give credit, and, let, and let's give credit where credit is due. These are high-impact gifts. And yet, as impressive as their generosity is, because they have so much already, and because they will still be left with, with what is comparatively a lot, their giving is, relatively speaking, fairly small. It would be a different thing entirely if they said, I'm going to give away 100% of what I have to this kid in Omaha. It would be a different thing entirely if we'd read that one of their kids had been ransomed, but instead of asking for money, the kidnapper asked for the hand of a parent. And they allowed their hand to be cut off for the sake of their child. But even that doesn't give us an accurate picture of the generosity of God because we might expect someone to have his hand cut off for his child. I doubt there's a parent in this room who wouldn't gladly give up your hand for your child, your child whom you so dearly love. And that's why Romans 5, 8 is so important. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, when there was nothing good in us, when we were miserable rebels, when we were children of wrath, when we were stinking corpses, when we were followers of Satan, that's when God did not spare his own son for us. He gave again freely. He gave what he loved the most for sinners who did nothing to deserve his generosity. At Calvary, God gave freely and entirely of himself. I, I care deeply that you faithfully serve your church and your family, kids, your parents, church members, that you preach good sermons, that you evangelize the lost, that you disciple younger believers and older believers, all that's so good. But let's agree that we can't pay God back for what he's done. Let's just agree that it would be ridiculous to think that even our pastoral generosity would somehow earn God's favor or make us in any way righteous or in a special class of citizens, Christian citizens before God. Nothing you and I will ever do to compare to his generosity on display on the cross of Christ. And when you consider the depth of your own sin and the magnitude of God's gift, the only appropriate response is awe and humility and I should add repentance and faith. 
Humble yourself. I know I'm at a pastor's conference. Humble yourself. Confess your sin. Acknowledge only the gift of God in Christ is strong enough and precious enough to free you from slavery to sin. And if Christ is your Savior, and let me just make clear that pastoral ministry is not in and of itself evidence of regeneration. I know you know that. If Christ is your Savior, you can expect to be lavished with everything you need from Him. Why? Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So because God was most generous in giving up His Son for us, we can trust He will be generous in the lesser things that I mentioned at the beginning of the message. Third and final question, what does this mean for the pastor? It means so much. It means so much. It means we should be heralds of this good news. Uh, we should be wanting nothing more than seeing sinners who are in love with politics and in love with promotions and who are in love with praise to realize that nothing is better, nothing is greater, nothing is more glorious than our generous God. Like we should, we should, we should want to get back in that pulpit and proclaim this good news. We should want to be heralds of this good news wherever we are. We should want to, to raise up our grandchildren and our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We should want them to know however great someone may think we are, we are so minuscule in greatness when compared to the lavish generosity of our sovereign life-giving God. We should hunger to give out that good news regardless of the response of the people to whom we're preaching, because it is de facto awesome news that he's just that generous. So that's one example of what it means for the pastor. It means we should be cross-centered preachers. If the cross is, in fact, the greatest demonstration of God's generosity, how can we let a sermon go by without pointing our people to the cross? Amen. To our God's giving of His only begotten Son, of our God's giving of Himself. Paul said that he desired to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I want to be a preacher like that. Sometimes I get a little bit nervous when I'm preaching and I've left the gospel for the end. Man, I don't want them to think that, you know, it's not the first thing that I want to proclaim. I don't always leave it to the end. But I don't want a sermon to go by without the gospel of Jesus Christ and His atoning blood being preached. We should love our neighbors. If our God is a generous God, our neighbors should see generosity poured out not only in the churches we're so priv privileged to serve, but amongst the lives of the neighbors whom God has put in our sphere of influence. Our God is a generous God, and our unbelieving neighbors should see our generosity. Those are specific examples. 
But I want to end with this more broadly, more generally. We should be radically generous. Thursday morning, this last Thursday morning, I got into the office at 8.30 a.m. to Zoom with a brother ministering to Muslims in Central Asia. We talked for about an hour. We talked about Hebrews chapter 11 and what it looks like to live by faith. And to, we talked about what's it look like for me as a pastor in Atlanta and him uh, as an elder and a missionary uh, in Central Asia. What does it look like for us to take great risks for God, recognizing that these saints in Hebrews chapter 11, um, they conquered kingdoms and they obtained promises and they, you know, lived in caves and they lived by faith. And we were saying, we want that with our lives. Like, I, I want that with my life in America. He wants it with his life overseas. And so we just, we talked about that. We explored that. Uh, after that, I took a long walk with a, a brother in our church, a member of our church, an elder in our church, and we just talked about life and ministry. Uh, at lunchtime, I spent an hour reading through a book on grace with a relatively young Christian who's a member of our church. That afternoon, I worked on this talk, and then I had an early dinner with uh, our elder chair. Uh, he checks in on me regularly. We check in on one another. After that dinner, we had an elder missions team to talk about missions priorities at our church. And after that elder missions team, we had an elders meeting, which went to 10 p.m. And then I got home, and thankfully, most of my kids are teenagers, so they're up pretty late. So I was up for an hour and a half, and we talked. We caught up on the day, and we watched a couple Holderness videos. I think they do that, like, for a job. I totally don't get that. Uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, it totally doesn't matter. Now, this isn't a usual day for me. Yeah, I'm normally at the dinner table with my family. If anything, that's one thing I love about being a pastor is that I've got enough control over my schedule that I'm typically at, at home for dinner. But I suppose, in all honesty, it's not super abnormal either. My job, my ministry isn't nine to five. And to tell you the truth, I'm not always sure when I'm doing the work of the ministry and simply being a Christian. It is not always clear in my mind. I mean, if I mapped it out on a Venn diagram, it's like, well, here's Aaron the pastor, and here's Aaron the Christian, and, man, I just don't know how far they overlap. Now, thankfully, I love the ministry, and I love the work, but I have to admit that pastoring can be tiring. Now, I'm sure that there are many lazy pastors. I don't know any. Like, none come to mind. I'm sure they're out there. But the pastors I know, they're diligent. They're, they're constantly working to meet the demands of their churches while faithfully managing their households well. It's not easy, though. And, and of course, more than one pastor has sacrificed his wife and kids at the altar of ministry. We know that that happens. And if that's you, you know, me not knowing you, it's obviously time to revisit your schedule, make some adjustments, maybe even leave the ministry, at least for now. But again, that's, that's not the message I, I wanted to give. Our God is a generous God, and we're to be a generous people. And if we expect the members of the churches that we are so privileged, privileged to lead to be generous, we must show them the way. 
But if our generosity comes from a desire to be liked or to be seen as a hard worker or to gain a good reputation in our church or in our community, we will soon be bitter and angry and burned out. And we'll just be mad when we get up early on Sunday morning to review our sermon. And we'll say to ourselves, no one understands how hard I work. And there'll be kind of a gross discontentment brewing in our souls as we're about to, dis to, 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 to proclaim the, the majesty and the generosity of God from the pulpit. We're to be generous because God is generous, full stop. As you consider the ministry, you may be tired. However, the fact that you are tired is not conclusive evidence that your life lacks balance. In other words, your tiredness may not be because you are doing something wrong. It may be because you are doing something right. Because you are being generous as God is generous. Do you see why I asked you to listen with discernment and to apply this message with discernment? Yes, 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 you can be worn out for the wrong reasons. But if you are generous as God is generous, you will very likely experience seasons of exhaustion. Now, Oswald Chambers is not always a Scottish missionary. He's not always the most reliable guide. And in the quote that I'm about to give to you, I'd encourage you to listen carefully. It's not the Bible. If I were him, I would have put things slightly differently, and I certainly didn't have to give you his quote. I could have given you my own quote. But there's enough in here, in, the, in this rather lengthy quote I'm about to give you, that just sounds to me so almost countercultural to a lot of the ministry talks I hear today. And so even though I think the quote's not perfect, I wanted you to stew on what Oswald Chambers wrote down in exhorting ministers like us. Here's what he said, or wrote. Exhaustion means that the vital forces are worn right out. Spiritual exhaustion never comes through sin, but only through service. And whether you are exhausted will depend upon where you get your supplies. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. But he gave him nothing to feed them with. The process of being made broken bread and poured out wine means that you have to, you have to be the nourishment for other souls until they learn to feed on God. They must drain you to the dregs. Again, he puts it a funny way. Uh, Jesus gave Peter the word of God with which to feed the sheep. But I understand what he's saying there. There's a sense in which you, you pour yourself out equipping the saints with the hope that they will become self-feeders themselves and they'll start equipping others. Let me continue with Chambers. Be careful that you get your supply or before long you will be utterly exhausted before other souls learn to draw on the life of the Lord Jesus direct they have to draw on it through you. You have to be literally sucked until they learn to take their nourishment from God. We owe it to God to be our best for his lambs and his sheep as well as for himself. Has the way in which you have been serving God betrayed you into exhaustion? If so, then rally your affections. Where did you start the service from? 
from your own sympathy or from the basics of the redemption of Jesus Christ. Continually go back to the foundation of your affections and recollect where the source of power is. You have no right to say, oh Lord, I am so exhausted. He saved and sanctified you in order to exhaust you. Be exhausted for God, but remember that your supply comes from Him. End quote. Right, that passage may have a, a couple problems, but there's wisdom there. Brother, pastors, if you are exhausted, it may be because you are doing something wrong, but it may be because you're doing something so very right. It may be simply that you are being generous as God is generous, pouring out your life for Christ as Christ has, has poured out his life already for you. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning grateful that you are our generous God. I pray for the brothers and sisters in this room that they would have the wisdom to know where their life needs to be tweaked or adjusted in order to find the proper balance of pursuing the hard work of ministry and pursuing the, the leisure, which is an appropriate gift from you to receive. Give them wisdom to calibrate their lives in appropriate ways. But Father, may we never forget that it is not merely the mark of a Christian pastor, but the mark of every faithful Christian to be generous as you are generous. May we do so gladly. May we do so constantly turning to you for fresh supplies. And we pray all of this in the glorious name of our crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.